0: A number of years ago, while I was practicing the organ, there was one particular piece of music that came my way that I just couldn't seem to master. I struggled and I struggled, and I kept adding time and time and more time practicing and trying to get this smoothed out. And I know at one point in time, I was starting to get a little frustrated, and so I went online, and I started to search tips for musicians, how to improve yourself. And I went and I found all sorts of different articles There were some that just had a couple of different pointers or some that had maybe five or even up to ten But as I went through I had all sorts of different Conflicting information, but eventually I started to distill it down and I realized they were all starting to say the same thing focus on your mistakes Focus on those areas of weakness. Look at those different parts of the music that are not going well and start to focus on those and spend your time there and then eventually it'll all come together. But that's something we really don't like to do if you think about it weakness or mistakes or failures those are the things that we kind of want to push to the side and ignore that even though they happen even though they're a part of our life we just don't really want to spend time there but whether we're an athlete whether we're a doctor whether we're a teacher whether we're all sorts of different professions if you think about it the only way to improve is to focus and to improve upon those mistakes And even in a life of faith, though we don't like to do it ourselves, even though we like to think that we have things together, if we are going to improve, if we are going to continue to strive for perfection as our Lord would have it, then indeed we're going to have to look at weakness. We're going to have to look at failure. We're going to have to look at sin. We're even going to have to delve into some of our mistakes. But what does that mean exactly, and what does that look like? The first reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, and to set the stage for exactly where it comes from, we have to remember this is right after the flood has happened. Noah has disembarked from the ark with all the animals and his family members, and then he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord sees this, he's pleased with this, and then he sees that sacrifice and he starts to tell them and dialogue with them in this way, reminding them that he's got a part of the bargain as well, that he's going to remind them that he's never going to destroy the earth again by the waters of a great flood. He's never going to purge the world of filth and of evil by this very means. And it's not just enough to say that. The Lord wants to give them more reassurance. And so he tells them that he's going to set this majestic bow in the clouds, this rainbow, so that they can look at that and they can always be reminded of the way that the Lord has made this promise. And it sounds kind of like the Lord is making this a promise for Himself, or rather, He's making this recollection to remind Him of the covenant. But it's really for all parties involved, reminding them that the Lord will never induce this flood again, so that they need not live in fear nor anxiety. But it's interesting because we see one part of the bargain, but we see the other part actually come into play in the responsorial psalm that our way, the way. The Lord's ways are truth and love for those who keep his covenant. And it's interesting because that's not just the Lord's ways, but that's actually the ways of those who would want to keep a covenant with the Lord. That promise, that simple word of contract between the Lord and between his people. We move on to the first letter of St. Peter and he speaks about how Jesus took all of the sins of the world upon himself and ultimately died to put those sins to death. That he was the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous. He was the perfect for the sake of the imperfect. He was the one that was the only one that was able to come and to atone for all of the sinfulness and all of the wickedness of the people. And therefore he comes into our midst, he comes into our brokenness and he dies and puts those things. It's the but it's not enough to say just this, but it, it reminds us of the engagement that we are to have with this mystery. Because he Peter, he wants to set the framework in the prefigurement through the flood of Noah. Now, the flood of Noah was a physical event. It happened quite some time ago, and we can think of it in those terms, but actually it's been sacramentalized and taken into a new form. Because after Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, it has become the sacrament of baptism, where the Lord no longer floods the entire earth, but instead floods the soul. That this flooding removes the old self, and then it restores us to life and adopts us as God's sons and daughters. And so there is no need to purge the entire world. There's no need to flood the entire earth, but instead it floods our souls, and it gives us that opportunity for conversion through Jesus Christ. And so as much as Noah's mystery was something to behold back then, now it's taken on all the more meaning. Then finally, we move on to the Gospel according to Mark, and we hear about this twofold account, how first, Jesus went into the desert to be tempted. We're told that he is there for 40 days, which is symbolic because it tells us that it is to the limits of human endurance that Jesus is able to overcome and even go past this limit because of his strength and his reliance upon God. And so we're told that he's out there for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying, simply relying upon on the Lord and nothing else and we're lest we think that he got a softball that he got an easy way out The gospel is very clear that he was out there amongst the wild beasts to tell us that he was in the midst of all of those Things that could cause him to struggle or at least the devil thought so that this is in the midst of depravity This is utter desolation This is out in the middle of the desert with no recourse to any sort of earthly fulfillment or earthly desire The Lord was not given an easy way to go. But nonetheless, we're told angels ministered him, that he relied only on the Lord, that he was able to see that it was only by God's power that he was going to be able to go through these 40 days and 40 nights and to come out successful. But he didn't just survive because notice the next account that we hear in the gospel is him going forward to preach that John the Baptist is arrested And then Jesus immediately goes out on mission that he didn't just make it through those 40 days But he in fact thrived and he was so close to God's Father that he immediately went about his will that he went forward He taught he told them that this is the time of fulfillment the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel And these very words are the same words that we used this past Wednesday. Whenever ashes were traced on our heads, we heard those very same words, repent and believe in the gospel. And it's a beautiful recollection because it tells us John the Baptist's mission wasn't over, that the need for conversion didn't stop just there, but Jesus extended it not even to his own time, but even through our own, reminding us too of the need for conversion as well. But all of this goes together, and what is it trying to tell us as a people of faith and as we're gathered here today? Well, first, we need to realize that God is working for the renewal of the entire earth. That as much as he was working towards the restoration of the earth in the time of Noah, he works for it today. That we might have thought of him as just a creator that kind of set things in motion and walked away. But he didn't. He invested in that creation. That even through the waters of the great flood, he was willing to purge the entire world of wickedness and of evil so that it could be restored to righteousness yet again. And what's more, he dialogued with the people. He set forward with them a covenant through that sign of the rainbow, reminding us that he is there, that he's still looking out for our well-being. But it's not the same as it was then, that we don't need to be constantly worried of a flood or a great tribulation that's going to purge the entire world of evil, because God is much more intentional now, because he's working to purge our souls from evil. And that's the second thing. That the Lord is not just working for the renewal of the earth as a whole, but he's working for the renewal and the conversion of each and every one of us. That he wants to make us aware of all of those need, we, ways that we need his grace, the ways that we need to be renewed, the ways that we need grace, the ways that we need divine help and divine aid. And so the Lord comes into our souls, and we know this by the letter of Peter too, because he reminds us that Noah's flood, that was a prefigurement, and now we get the flood of grace through baptism because we need that particular cleansing. We need the original sin removed. We need all the old things cast aside so that we can live as sons and daughters of God. But there's still a problem. And this problem has existed since the time of Adam and Eve. And this is the problem what the Catholic Church calls concupiscence. That is the inclination to sin. How easy it is for us to choose the wrong thing. It's something that has been there ever since Adam and Eve and still exists to this day. And it's something not completely eradicated by the grace of baptism, but it's something counteracted only by the grace of God. And as we participate with and cooperate with that grace... And that, in fact, is where we find our renewal and where we find growth this day. Because think about the context. We are in this first week of Lent, that we've started our very journey, and we might be tempted to look at Jesus and think about his perfection, and we might think that we just simply have to try our best to try to imitate that as best as we can. So we strive to look at our virtues. We look at the ways that we're doing life right, or the ways that we think that we're doing better than the average or better than the status quo. And oftentimes we'll comfort and console ourselves, saying that, well, at least I've got this figured out. At least I'm doing well in this area of charity. Or maybe I'm friendly with my neighbor over in this area. But that's not really what Lent is about. Lent is not for perfect people. Lent is not for those who have life figured out or those that think that they've got God's way and that they've attained the perfection that only Christ has ever had. Because the reality is, Lent is for an imperfect people. It's for a people that are broken. It's a pe- It's for a people that are sinful, a people that struggle with their relationship with God. And that is what it's for. But lest we think that it's supposed to be very harsh and very critical, this actually reminds us of the need that we have for God, the ways that we need to receive His grace, the ways that we need to depend on Him more fully. Because as we seek to go out into the desert, it reminds us of the ways that we need to remove everything that is in the way of God so that we can receive him more fully and in a more intimate way. And that is why the season of Lent is not a focus on perfection, that it's not about extolling our virtue, but rather it's about seeing our mistakes. It's about seeing the ways that we fail or we succumb to weakness, about the ways that when we see temptation, we don't turn and run away. Rather, sometimes we kind of go with it. But the Lord Jesus, as he gives us an example of perfection, he gives us an example, too, to show us that he wants to help us with that perfection. He wants to help us with a life of grace. He wants to help us on our life of faith. And he wants to give us that divine aid to make us more able to follow his commandments. It starts at baptism, but we can't just rely on that grace or simply sit on that, but we have to continue to participate with it each and every moment of our life. That we can't just say one and done, but rather we have to continue to cooperate. And we have to think, too, that in that first reading, as we looked at the book of Genesis, we see that rainbow as a sign of God's friendship. And we might think that we can take that for granted, or we can take advantage of it. But that's not why the rainbow's there. Because God doesn't need reminded of his covenant we need to remind it of his covenant. We need to keep up our end of the bargain. We need to understand that that rainbow or anytime we see one is a reminder of our duty towards God or the ways that we fall short so that we can continue to seek after God in a fuller and more deliberate way. And it's not a sign of debauchery. It's not a sign that should be used against the Lord or against biblical value, or rather it's a sign that shows us that we need God's grace. We need His mercy now more than ever before. And that, in fact, is what we come together to do as we celebrate this Lenten season. That it's a moment for us to look at those failures and those weaknesses. And I dare say that each and every one of us have at least one or two areas where we are looking to improve something. Maybe there's a particular area of sinfulness that's just really hard to kick or to gain victory over. Or maybe there's a particular weakness. Or maybe sometimes it's not really a sin per se, but it's something that holds us back in our life of God. Maybe it's sometimes it's just social media or all the technology that comes our way. Maybe it's not strictly sinful, but in some way it does hinder us from growing in our life of faith. Because now is the time that we start to work on those things. Now is the time where we take maybe one or two of those things and we set our sights upon them for the entirety of these 40 days and 40 nights as we go out into the desert to work on them ourselves, but also to ask for God's grace, to ask for the grace of the one who went out into the desert, was tempted for 40 days, had nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and still made it through successfully. We need a piece of his grace. We need his help. We need his aid, because without it, we will never gain victory in the way that we desire. But it takes some self-mastery. It takes us being aware of our deficiency, of our weakness, and the way that we need to rely upon the Lord. Because he's not calling us to tell how perfect we are. He's not calling us to lord over other people, because oftentimes that drives a wedge between us and between others who need to hear the gospel message. Rather, it's for us to hear that simple call to conversion, to remind ourselves we're not perfect yet. We don't have it all figured out, but that's okay, because by the grace of God, we can continue to strive and to make improvement. And that's where the homework is for this season of Lent. Maybe it's good for each and every one of us to find one or two of those sinful areas that we struggle with. Impurity, gossip, lies, the ways that we struggle with the life of prayer, whatever it may be, or those things that kind of get in the way, even if they may not be sin, but they might be a weakness, that those areas are areas that we can set as our goals for this season of Lent to work on those one or two areas and to really strive with God's grace to make improvements so that when Easter comes, we'll be cooperating with His grace in a much fuller way than ever before. Because Jesus went out into the desert not to prove His perfection to us or the ways that we should pretend that we're perfect right here and right now. He went out to show us His perfection so that we can strive for that perfection, even in the midst of weakness and sinfulness. Because musicians or teachers or doctors or athletes or any of those who are striving to make improvements, they don't just focus on what they do well, but they focus especially on their mistakes, on their deficiencies, on their areas of weakness, so that in time they can be more perfect and they can strive to make that improvement that they desire. So that encouragement is there for each and every one of us as we begin the season of Lent. Let's not focus on the things that we do well, and let's not be discouraged either, but rather with the Lord's help and with God's guidance through the desert and through these next 40 days, let's continue to strive after His strength and His grace, so that in time we can strive to make victory even over our deficiencies, our mistakes, and our weaknesses and those things that hold us back from our Lord and from our God.